You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. Setting a record for self-help books, Robin Sharma's The 5am Club, Own Your Morning, Elevate Your Life, has been on the South African list of top 10 best-selling books for the past 24 months, if you believe it. This says a whole lot about uh, what South Africans like to read, and we know that we prefer non-fiction and those sort of how-to uh, pop-sci books to fiction. But uh, Ben Williams, uh, a books writer and founder of publisher's marketing agency, The Bookshop, has found another trend. And he says that these last two years, Sharma's uh, book's constant companion in the Daily Maverick Top 10 has been Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, whose message is somewhat counter to what Sharma preaches. Uh, if this carries on for a few more years, uh, the end result will be an entire nation waking up at five in the morning with zero fucks left to give. And then what? Sounds like most people I know who are suffering from uh, some degree of COVID burnout at the moment. Is there really anything to this 5am club fad? Uh, and when dealing with uh, the COVID anxiety, how do we recognize the early warning signs and deal with these rising stress, uh, rising stress levels? Well, we've invited a well-known wellness specialist, Richard Sutton, author of The Stress Code and Stress Proof, who has advised uh, top athletes from Maria Sharapova to the Chinese Olympic team and uh, consults leading companies on stress resilience and employee engagement and productivity to share some advice with us. Great to chat again, Richard. And we've also got serial entrepreneur Nick Haralumbus, who knows all about the bane of burnout. Uh, welcome to the show, Nick. Richard, is the 5 a.m. thing just another wellness fad? What is the science behind it? So I, I think some of the advantages um, with removing yourself from the outside world for a block of time, say, or say two hours, um, is that there's going to be this environment of focus, there's going to be environments of limited distraction, there's going to be this environment where there's just clarity on the topics and, and issues that you're contending and dealing with. Uh, if you look at some of the research in terms of distractions which occur in our everyday life, we're looking at a phone which uh, just went off now. Um, if, we, if we're looking at phones and we're looking at emails and we're looking at interaction between colleagues, um, we're seeing that a four-second disruption is likely to induce or increase our prevalence of errors by 300%. We know that a slightly longer interruption, a couple of minutes, uh, for example, will take us about 23 minutes to return back to the original activity at the same level of attention and focus uh, where we left off. And we also know that constant distractions and multitasking decreases our IQ by around 11% and largely through a change in the morphology um, of a region of the brain known as the anterior cingular cortex. So the advantage in my, from my perspective to getting up early when no one's up and about and not having to answer mails and calls and, and just really consolidating the day, so to speak, um, is very much in this space. But there's one thing that I think is very important to understand, and that is that we all have a, a certain intrinsic biological rhythm. We have the, the circadian rhythms that govern our sleep-wake cycles. Some of us are very adept in the morning. We, we're very focused and we get up easily and our cortisol levels are optimal. Some of us really struggle. And I think that it's, whether it's the 5 a.m. club or the 7 p.m. club, I think that you can achieve the same amount of outcomes or, or you can achieve the same results by just blocking off a certain time of the day, albeit later at night or earlier in the morning, to just really focus on on the developmental mm. um, journey of your life. 
So it's looking at the output rather than the input here, saying that what are you trying to achieve? You're looking just to get a period in your day where you don't have all, all of the distractions. And let's face it, every social media tool, every communications tool has effectively been designed to distract our, our, our attention. We get those little dopamine hits every time we see a red dot or something like that. Uh, it's very well known. Nick, what are your thoughts on, on the 5am club uh, and how do you approach your life? Yeah, so I think that the, the tricky part of the 5am club is that most people in 2021 like to read the tweet version of an entire book. And they believe that waking up at 5am is going to solve their problems, make them efficient, get them going and smash their day. And I recently re released the YouTube videos saying, don't wake up at 5am. And the core premise is, if it doesn't work for you and you have no plan, why would you wake up at 5am? You will be sleep deprived and depressed and sad and you'll hate your life. And exactly like Richard says, not everybody is made for early mornings. And I recently discovered this by interviewing the head of the Sleep Science Institute. Um, and she said, some people physically cannot get their brains working before 9am. If that's you, respond accordingly. Um, and in my life, I am an early wake up, uh, uh, 5.30 on average. And exactly what Richard says, I focus on myself, my meditation, my exercise, walking my dogs, trying to not look at my phone, do all the things that I can't do when humans are awake and interacting with me. And usually on a work front, that means that I'm writing. Um, mm. Much like Richard, I also write books. So my writing time is in the morning when nobody else is awake and nobody can email me. Um, that's one of the key things that I focus on. Yeah, and I think the take home is, again, find what works for you uh, rather than some cookie cutter approach uh, on the cover of a self-help book. Uh, I think there's a very important uh, point that you raised earlier, Richard, and that is the level of distraction in our day in an environment where increasingly companies are now focusing on productivity. We're, I'd like to say, emerging from, from the pandemic, but all the signs are we're actually heading into a third wave. We hope it will be lower than, than the second wave uh, and only time will tell. But economic activity is opening up. Businesses are now looking to regain some of that lost ground. And so where they're focusing, they're focusing on productivity and they're placing more on the plates of their employees. And this is only going to lead to heightened stress. How does one deal with that? So then one has to understand, I mean, this whole productivity challenge that uh, the world's confronted with now has, has really taken shape from the Great Recession in 2008 and has just been escalating. We would think that with the advancement in technology and the integration of technology into business, that we wouldn't be having productivity issues, but we are. If we look at what are the drivers in terms of poor productivity, we've got hyper-connectedness. You know, this, uh, we're talking about the, the errors that we're making, the disruptions that affect our concentration. We multitask and we're doing so many things at once we don't do anything properly. But we also have to understand that there's been this massive recalibration of, of, of business. We've got extreme cost-cutting, uh, restructuring, indiscriminate retrenchments. You've got fewer people fulfilling the same operational roles, and that's a reality, and that will drive productivity down. We also have this reality coming up of, of chronic stress in, in the workplace and in life. Uh, we lack control, we lack support, we feel there's certain injustices in the world, we have uh, an effort reward imbalance, we don't feel valued, we don't feel appreciated, we don't have growth opportunities to the same extent that we had before. And this chronic stress will fundamentally affect the, the well-being of the workforce, well-being of ourselves, and create a, a diminishment in productivity. But we're also seeing a, a shift in, in organizational uh, cultures where there's unnecessary bureaucracy and long email chains and needless conference calls and unnecessary meetings 
meeting, a dysfunctional meeting behavior and, and meetings that don't have a clear agenda that are also really driving productivity into the ground. And what do we expect under these conditions, these four major drivers? We expect our teams to perform well above um, what, what they're capable of. And we label it the high performance culture and we just add more demands with longer working hours and we put a work family conflict into the mix and that drives mental health compromise. I think it will increase mental health risk by 60%, physical health by 50%, burnout risk exponentially. And it offers no productivity or performance advantages whatsoever. And this is the reality of, of the world that we're living in. Uh, and uh, in that reality, I mean, how do, how do we deal with that? If you're working as an entrepreneur with teams uh, and you're expecting them to do, and, and teams of people here, not uh, on a video conferencing app, and you're expecting people to do more with less, how do we do that without impacting their wellness uh, and, and their mental wellness uh, on the other end of it? So I think that one of the issues here is that um, entrepreneurs are also under extreme pressure and we haven't acknowledged that there is this mental health aspect that is actually the top of the totem pole of priorities. And for me, it's something I've been saying forever. I call it the sacrifice fallacy. Entrepreneurs believe that we have to sacrifice our mental and physical health to operate at the best possible level. And it's completely the opposite. You have to put your mental and physical health at the top of your priority list and everything else is better and easier from that. So if you work in a business where the boss, the CEO, the manager is absolutely all over the show, shouting and screaming, inefficient, I can tell you now for free that they are not prioritizing their mental and physical health. And as a response to that, they think you need to work harder when actually everybody needs to take their foot off the gas, get eight hours of sleep, calm down and work more efficiently, not work more. And this is a fundamental problem that entrepreneurs on the, the dot-com era believe that 18 to 24 hour days of work are efficient. It is not true. And I predict that in the next 10 years, we're going to understand that working more effectively is better than working longer. I'm already seeing it with smaller entrepreneurs who have chosen to not build these billion-dollar startups and go to a business of one. I am one of those right now. I am a business of one because I work my own hours at my own rates, and I have a long-term view of what success looks like for me. I'm not growing for the sake of growth. Those are the things we need to get under control so that we can look at the best people and let them do the best work without the pressures of bad mental and physical health. Uh, some great uh, personal advice there. Uh, and uh, Richard, if you look at it uh, from the, the, the corporate viewpoint in an environment where, where corporates are, are dealing with this issue of, of uh, returning workforce or, or maybe some workers staying at home with the threat of a, a potential third wave and this disconnected feeling that we're getting via working on Teams or Zoom, how does one manage the, the, the needs and the demands of this increasing productivity treadmill that we're on and uh, maintaining wellness and managing your stress on the other hand. So I think, I mean, I agree with Nick on, on every single point. I mean, it was like a, an orchestra going off when he was talking. Um, if you look, what is a business? A business is individuals with unique skills and talents and the time that these individuals can dedicate to the organization. That's what a business is. A business is its people. And it stands to reason that healthy employees can access their skills, their talents, their abilities more effectively and dedicate more time to their professional responsibilities. So there's this incredibly strong relationship between wellness and output and potential. And if we have to remedy this and if we have to fix this and address this and, and create the enabling environment, what you would have to do is there would have to be a central focus on health. There would be health 
protection so that you would provide more support for those who are working remotely, instrumental support, so it's guidance, it's mentorship, it's it's really kind of getting on the ground and, and helping people through through their tasks. You would have stress buffering within the context of allowing work family conflicts to not or try and prevent work family conflicts, giving people more autonomy, giving them set parameters, uh, making people feel valued and appreciated, giving them opportunities for growth development, always being just and fair and trying transparent. Um, these, these are health protection strategies which are essential in enabling your workforce. But at the same time, there also has to be this health promotion um, element, uh, just providing uh, access to resources, tools, and, and skills that will augment like fitness and, and psychological uh, well-being and overall health well-being and promoting recovery and helping people make the right choices with food and activity and so on. So, so there's these elements which I think are, are, are central to this, this productivity fix. But at the same time, you have to create, provide an enabling environment, stable environment, good infrastructure, strong technology. You have to provide an innovative ecosystem. So you want to encourage dynamism and creativity, and you've got to want to encourage rethinking and retaking um, situations. And then finally, it's all about skills. I mean, our skills, uh, there, there was a, been several studies. World Economic Forum was one of the, the biggest studies, just looking at the skills that we have now and are they going to be relevant in the next couple of years. And the answer is that in 50% of cases, no. Um, so I think it, there's this, this comprehensive and complete model that, that answers that question. How does one you know, take self-care in a pandemic, for example, when everyone is working past 100% because you feel like, well, I've still got a job and uh, I really shouldn't be complaining. If I'm feeling a little bit burnt out at both ends, well, I could not have a job. And, and so people don't feel like they can uh, care for themselves. How do you approach this? Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds almost like you're describing survivor's guilt there, um, which is, is probably what it is that we're mostly feeling. Um, so I've had to set up some very clear boundaries for myself. Um, working from home, I think that people misunderstand working from home and working at home. Most of us have been forced to work at home and we're not really set up to work from home. So there are all these relationship complexities that come with it. Like my partner comes home at five o'clock and she's in my office. So I've had to readjust that. And there's a little gateway time where we kind of figure each other out at the end of the day. Um, and just setting rules and boundaries is super important. Um, and rules is even the wrong word. I've learned about myself and people like me that habits are more important than rules. I'm an adult, so I can break rules. So if I say I need to go to bed early, of course I can break that rule. If I create a habit around that, eating healthy, exercising, sleeping well, those habits form part of your day. And over a period of time, you start to actually feel better about the things you're doing. So I've put those kinds of habits in, go to bed early, don't eat too late, wake up when I want to, all those things help. Mm. But there's also something on a philosophical level that I've had to come to terms with. And I think I've worked out this analogy that explains this thing that I hate that people call it work-life balance. It is such a false dichotomy. There is, there is more than two things in your life. It isn't work and life. That doesn't work for me. So I like to use the anatomy of that being a seesaw. So in a seesaw, if it isn't perfectly balanced, one thing tips. I like to rather think of plate balancing. When you have multiple plates up in the air, you spin them, you give them some trajectory, you let them run. Some of them are glass, some of them are paper, some of them need more attention, some of them need less. What I've had to do is figure out which plates are glass, which are the most important to give my attention to in the short, medium and long term, and which things need to fall to the wayside. We can't have everything. We need to prioritize and focus our energy and attention on the things that feed us in the positive way, not the negative.
Mm, and uh, back to my point, Richard, you know, not many individuals are, are self-actualized as Nick. And Nick, you've obviously done a lot of work uh, with your psychologists over the years as well. But often employees in high-performing cultures just, you know, you, you kind of suck it up and you drive through. And that's the kind of, uh, you know, the mentality in corporate South Africa. Uh, Richard, how do we change that? And are we seeing a change out there? Are we seeing companies take this as seriously as they should? Because I was reading recently the World Economic Forum saying we are seriously at risk of suffering a second pandemic of um, uh, workout-related burnout and stress. Absolutely. And I think organizations, I mean, I've, I've had some conversations in the last two weeks with South African businesses that are so dynamic and so on this and really making the necessary changes to uplift the lives of the people who come into work every day or work remotely every day. And I think that, um, you know, in, in terms of the actualization of self, um, talking to your next point, it really is about the decisions you make and the choices that you make um, with a certain degree of flexibility. And it would be an ideal situation is if, if everyone could make those, those positive decisions that impact our life really uh, profoundly. But the reality is that uh, it's a joint it's a joint venture. I think that businesses have to take a certain degree of responsibility for the well-being of the teams that come in every day. And I think that we also have to take a certain uh, degree of responsibility in addressing this. And if we look at burnout, I mean, the prevalence of burnout is, uh, you know, I can go through each individual group, but but essentially we're looking at two-thirds of, of employees within high-performing organizations. And this can range from physicians to lawyers, um, two-thirds are, are experiencing some sort of burnout. And we assume burnout is just, I can't get up in the morning and I'm exhausted and I can't move my feet and I can't exercise properly. But burnout is much more comprehensive and it's, it's, it has a range of, of outcomes and it has a range of symptoms. And most of these symptoms are in the emotional domain. We start get, becoming very irritable. We start becoming more reactive and we don't feel that we have a grip on things and we start doubting ourselves and our self-worth starts to decline. We become very negative and very pessimistic. And then it starts really kind of manifesting in that physical space. So burnout is this, this very, very kind of broad set. But if you look at what the driving force in burnout is, and we always assume it's high demands. Um, and in reality, high demands is not the primary cause of burnout. So there was a, a Gallup study to uh, seven, seven and a half thousand people in the study looking at the primary triggers in burnout in working populations. And the primary cause of burnout was injustice, the experience of injustice. It increases the risk of burnout by 230%. So organizations have a tremendous amount of control in the space. In fact, mm. the, the vast majority of the, the factors, whether it's low support, uh, employment insecurity, injustice, uh, role uncertainty, these, these elements, which are the primary contributing factors to burnout can be controlled from an organizational perspective. And in essence, we're looking at four primary stresses. If you can manage those stresses within yourself, within your teams, you can change the landscape appreciably. And those stresses are give people more control, more autonomy, more authority, um, while at the same time creating parameters and, and certain degree of accountability. Provide more support, emotional support, instrumental support. Pro be very, uh, I think that one has to be extremely focused on justice, distributive justice, procedural justice, informational justice, interpersonal justice, because this is one of the big factors in burnout. And then I think all of us, we the, the things that really make us tick and make us move in life um, are growth. We, we want to be moving forward. We want to be developing ourselves. We want to be moving in a direction. If, and if businesses can provide these opportunities for making employees feel appreciated and valued and that there mm. is something coming up on the horizon, that does mitigate so much of the stress that is so 
prevalent um, in businesses today. And then on, on the side, uh, people, you know, just creating the education platforms for, for people to look after themselves more effectively and successfully. Yeah, and, and it feeds into the autonomy of, of giving that responsibility over to the employee. We're already seeing uh, from work from home that there is a whole lot more flexibility and autonomy in, uh, in, in the work relationship. Uh, but what I always uh, struggle with is saying no, Nick. They always say, if you want something done, give it to the busiest guy in the room. Uh, because they're generally getting it done, but you know they can't say no either. One has to be able to draw boundaries. Uh, what, are, what are some of the tools that you've developed in your life to be able to say no? It's a very difficult question for me to answer because I'm far enough into my career that I get to say no. And unfortunately, a lot of people who are employed and early in their careers, they don't. They don't have a choice and they are made to feel guilty for having a job. Like, you better do this. Your alternative is not having a job. So unfortunately, I like everything Richard said resonates with me. You have to be self-aware. You have to take control of your own mental and physical health before you can feel comfortable saying no to a boss or a colleague. Um, and I think that this, the onus of this does actually lie on the employer. You need to be aware of what the job description is, how much work you're giving someone and how much output you're expecting of them. We need to also stop judging people on their attendance and we need to start letting them go forth and perform effectively in their own way. The trouble here is when you hire B and C players, you push them, you micromanage them, you're always on them. You need to hire the right people for the right work and let them do their jobs. Oftentimes, a lot of companies suffer from the Peter principle where managers are promoted to their next level of incompetence. And that means that you are an ineffectual manager pushing down ineffectual rules on people who are good at their jobs. So there is a lot of systemic change that is going to happen over the next 10 years. Unequivocally, this is going to happen. The best companies to work for in the future are going to be the ones that put their teams front and center and make them as effective as possible, not the ones with the biggest profit margins or the biggest growth potential. And those things will beget each other. The more you put your teams at the front and center, the better your company will perform. Uh, well, that uh, speaks to a fairly optimistic view of the future as more companies embrace us. Richard, just as uh, we've got two minutes to go, what would your advice be to individuals right now who are feeling burnt out, who have uh, uh, said, well, I'm reaching the end of my tether. What, what is your message of hope, message of advice for them uh, to get out of that uh, situation and to start turning things around? So I think there's there's a couple of parts to this, and I don't want to get too expansive, but I think one of the, the biggest missing pieces in the world that we live in now is we've, we've adopted so many concepts and ideas from professional sport, push yourself, like work at the highest level, uh, accelerate performance, and there's this push, 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 drive, 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 and that's been a central theme, and that's been imported into businesses. But what a lot of people who've incorporated these philosophies and these principles into business don't understand is that one of the primary themes in professional sports is recovery, is taking those times, those moments in the day just to shut down, just to regulate, just to govern that stress axis. So my advice right now is if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling you're in a state of hypervigilance and you're not regulating well, take, take a moment, take 15 minutes in the middle of the day, sit in your chair, Put on a, an app or YouTube video of meditation and just really slow your system down. You can use yoga, you can use breathing exercises, but I think my advice right now is just to take those moments in the day and don't feel guilty about it. You've got to be much more successful in the long run, uh, successful in the long run by incorporating the strategic approach. I think some fantastic advice from uh, the both of you. Thank you very much on this panel dealing with uh, burnout and stress. And should you wake up at 5 a.m.? Well, it really is up to you if uh, you're a morning uh, or a night owl.
style. I happen to be both. Uh, I don't think I'm in a, in, in a very good space right now. Richard Sutton, author of The Stress Code and Stress Proof and serial entrepreneur Nick Haralambos uh, talking about how we deal with uh, COVID stress.